welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Kingsley Dennis. Kingsley is a PhD sociologist, a researcher, and writer. He's the author of several critically acclaimed books, including Breaking the Spell, Struggle for Your Mind, New Consciousness for a New World, After the Car, and now the highly regarded work with Irvin Laszlo, The Dawn of the Akashic Age, which we have discussed in the past. His most recent book is The Phoenix Generation, A New Era of Connection, Compassion, and Consciousness, which we will be discussing today. Kingsley previously worked in the sociology department at Lancaster University in the UK and writes extensively on social futures, technology, and new media, communications, global affairs, and conscious evolution. I am pleased to welcome him all the way from Andalusia, Spain. Welcome, Kingsley. Thank you, Miriam, and thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure once again. Well, your book really delighted me. I have not felt such a wave of optimism for the future of humanity in a long time, and it's something that is particularly welcome at this time of rather dreadful news around the world. Are you truly as optimistic for the future of humanity as your book would indicate? (laughs) A good starting off question, Miriam, and the short answer is yes. Um, and you're right to pick up on that because I, you know, I have been approached by uh, people responding to the book and saying, "Was well, very optimistic. Are, are you sure about that?" And they they also asked me, "Do you know what's going on in the world?" Have <laughs> <laughs> read the news? <laughs> yeah, it's like you know, are, are you are you living in in uh, in the current times? And my answer is yes, and I'm very aware of what's happening in the world. Um, my background as a sociologist uh, keeps me uh, keen to, to follow what's going on. And, you know, I have looked, I have addressed these issues before um, about, especially in the book, The Struggle for Your Mind. And so I'm aware, but of course, as with anything, it's a, it's a conscious decision where you choose to put your focus and your attention. And um, so for this book especially, I, I wanted to, to note that there's so much going on in the world. There's so much innovation. There's also so many new minds coming into the world and joining the global conversation. And there's so much potential and capacity coming into the world, especially through the new generation, who, um, as, as we'll note through the book, are thinking differently. And that I think it's time to actually look at this you know, there's there's enough going on in the world. We can turn on our television and our news, um, and we can see what's coming through the mainstream channels. So, you know, I think there's an, already enough people highlighting that. So I've, I make a conscious decision to focus on what I think the potentials coming in down the line over the years. It won't be overnight. It will take, as I look at it, uh, you know, years and decades, but I think it's due time that we, we look at the capacity and the potential coming in through generational change and, and not to just to, to be distracted by, by what's really what I, what I feel and what I sense is really the, the death throes of an old system on its way out. And, and Miriam, you know, um, to use a metaphor of a drowning person, when a, a drowning person is often um, 
well, let's say, the most dangerous because they, they are swimming about and they are struggling. And that's when they're most visible in, in that. So my, my answer would be what we see in the world is very visible at the moment because it's going through a, a struggling, let's say, death throes of, of the final, uh, what I feel is the, um, these models, these systems are trying to hang on, but they know that they're, they're on the way out. And that's why it looks so bad. So I've taken a choice to look at what's coming in. That's an interesting metaphor that brings to mind my, my life-saving course um, in swimming, where a drowning person uh, would grab you around the neck, you know, and if you didn't release yourself, you would both drown. So there's something called a press-away technique where you press them away and duck your head under. And it's a great metaphor because you actually do need to detach yourself from the the panic, the chaos of the news and, um, you know, turn it around, push it away from you, and then you have the potential to save yourself and the planet. So tell me about the, the Phoenix Generation. That's the title of your book. Who are they? Uh, well, first off, uh, I think you're spot on with, with pointing out on, the, on that metaphor is that that's why we're getting sucked in right now. So I, I do feel we, we need to make a conscious decision to, to make that distance. And so the Phoenix Generation, um, well, to put it uh, plainly, is about the people being born around now. Uh, it could be a, you know, a few years before uh, a few years down the line, but around now. And they're coming into a world which is unprecedented because of where we are right now, in that we have a, we have a technological base, we have a, a time when the world is shifting from um, systems that were coming off the end of the Industrial Revolution and the, the older systems. And so they're coming into a time where the world is at an unprecedented stage. And so I was thinking, when were this generation coming in? When will they be... Uh, coming of age and entering the social and cultural domain. When will be they be entering the workforce and having a be able to have a, a real impact and influence? Well, when they're when they're going to be teenagers around 16 years of age, and so putting that onto the date today, 2014, then it's going to be 2030 when they really will be impacting the social domain. And so that's why I, I make a date of 2030 and try to look at how changes will be coming in from the Phoenix generation. Now, I, I named them the Phoenix, and the, the name just came to me, Miriam. I hadn't, um, I hadn't really pondered the name before, and it came to me because of the image of the Phoenix rising from the ashes of the old. And I feel that this generation has the potential... Um, to really change the systems by thinking in you and therefore really leaving them behind like the ashes. And the funny thing is, as soon as I came up with this name and started to, to work upon it, I started to see it in other areas. And I started to see it um, also, um, there are other groups that I think even there's a, some academy uh, existing calling, calling themselves the Phoenix something. And um, so it's almost as if I'm tapping into some, some uh, collective meme or, or something. So I don't claim to be, 
to be unique in this, but nor do I wish to be. I, I wish to, uh, to show that this understanding is, is coming in um, through other thinkers as well. And also, what I wanted to point out is I wanted to choose a name that didn't stigmatize anyone, that, that had a, a kind of uh, connotation of, of hope and change. Because I, I do feel that in some quarters, children are often being stigmatized by other names um, and other kind of images. And so I wanted the, to this to be quite clear and open, Miriam. Uh, of course, you do stigmatize current humanity as, as uh, imploding upon itself and the, the new generation rising from the ashes. And I, I suppose like um, any idea, there's not a, a, a kind of a, a step progression. We're talking about really a process uh, that has been ongoing over the last uh, 150 years or so. And it seems to be accelerating amazingly so that uh, I think we probably will see a, a quantum shift in our lifetimes, which is terribly exciting. Um, I, the, the core of this seems to be this shift in quantum consciousness. Can you speak to that? Yes, and, and you're right, is that it's been an ongoing process. And um, I think also we, we were, recently we've been lulled into this, uh, what I would call false sense of security, by thinking that this great change is going to happen overnight. And a lot of the, the insecurity in the social systems, especially after the economic uh, disbalance in, in late 2008. And so this idea that we're going to have this sudden change, but really, uh, social change has always taken time, and it takes a new way of thinking, a new perspective to enter the human consciousness before we can really see lasting, permanent change. And if we look at this um, shift in, in uh, human consciousness, or, or rather the ideas that are coming into human consciousness, they've been accelerating especially over the last 150 years. Now, I think a lot of that is to do with... Um, a shift in time and space perspectives. And that has to do with technology. So if we see after the uh, Second Industrial Revolution and the technologies of, of radio, um, and then we had, the, uh, we had telegraph and then television, these, these helped to condense time and space, to connect people together, which then often had, well, then had an impact upon the human consciousness and how we conceived of each other. Uh, very recently, we've gone obviously through from satellites to Wi-Fi and into a, a time where we're on the cusp of, of really a planetary society. And uh, people around the world, in varying degrees, of course, according to their culture, are connected in ways that, which are unprecedented. And that's had an impact on rewiring uh, our minds. And especially with the younger generation being coming into the world of this unprecedented connectivity, they're almost instinctively connecting with people around the world, uh, sharing ideas, connecting with like-minded people, and going beyond their borders, their spatial uh, domain. They're connecting uh, instantaneously with people in, people in different time zones. So we're having that condensation of time and space. That, that's one thing, Miriam. Another thing is that there's also a, um, a, a shift in the inner world, 
which has been going through a, a great change in the last century. And that's been helped by um, a, a knowledge coming into the world and being shared. So, for example, in the turn of the century, we had uh, the vocabulary and the, the knowledge of psychoanalysis and Freud and Jung and, and Reich. And then, obviously, we had this uh, influx of, of uh, teachings from the East coming into the West, especially in the 40s and 50s and 60s. We had transcendental uh, meditation and psychologies. So this all helped us to give us a vocabulary and a reflection upon the inner world, which perhaps we didn't have the, the tools to frame the inner world before. So there's been a great convergence now where... Um, we've had the tools of inner reflection and inner work and inner movement with this great uh, shift in physical systems of connectivity which are uh, uh, really shifting the boundaries of time and space. And so now this is, the, this is the plateau, this is the ballpark where a new generation of children are coming in and they're having this, um, you know, in, they're having this fear they're coming into. And so that really pl plays a foundation where consciousness um, is really has an ex a potential for an exponential shift from that. So when you have this sense of being instantly connected, which is a, really being validated by the quantum sciences, and then I think we're going to have a, in, the, in the upcoming years a huge innovation in quantum technology, this, this is going to be a springboard for uh, a different perspective on the world, a different perspective on human nature, on our connectivity to the world around us, which, which I frame quite loosely as being a um, quantum consciousness. Mm. Well, you're a social scientist, which uh, com combines the, the sort of um, soft um, humanistic sciences with more quantitative uh, physical sciences. And that's one of the things I really like about this book in that it interweaves and interleaves the two. So you, you feel a real perspective into the future that has a solid underpinning. It, as you say at the end of your book, it's not some, you know, it's not like a new age hippie type vision, but it's a very convincing, very solidly based um, projection. Um, so so give us the, a, a little taste of the the notions, the scientific underpinnings of your conviction of this emergence. Thank you, Miriam. Uh, you, yes, my background is sociology. You're right in saying that it's a softer humanistic science. Um, in my day, they were known as the ologies, <laughs> quite, quite, <laughs> just, you, know, uh, you know, I think condescendingly as well, seen as not really being hard enough. Um, and, and that has changed very recently with, with um, the world moving through globalization and technologies. Sociology has had to shift into seeing, uh, I think, a, a more quantitative uh, side. And also, for this book, I've tried to merge everything. I've tried to put in a lot more of my own instinct as well and my, my sense of, of where things are going. So I've tried to merge this, the sociolo sociology side with um, looking at the innovations in a scientific underpinning and, and technologies, and also by giving it 
a sense of my own speculative intuition because I felt I had to try to you know, walk the talk as well because that's exactly what I'm saying about the Phoenix generation is that they will be also spearheading this shift from acquired information to instinctive knowledge, which I think is, is, is a, a, a crucial to this, to this shift, is that we won't be so much relying upon um, the external uh, conditioning of, of our educational systems. We'll be very much trusting an, an instinctual gnosis and, and putting ourselves into the world with a lot more of, of our own confidence. Now, the science, in, I think, I've, my sense is that a lot of the time, science and the, and the humanities have, have been on divergent paths. And it's almost as if the East is East and West is West and never the twain shall meet. And that, that's really um, been a disservice to both parties. Because really, underlying, underlying the scientific understanding and, and the science and the understanding of the humanistic and the gnosis is really the same, the same basis. And so it's about time I feel that these are converging. And the, the scientific um, quantum, which I, I went into more detail in the book with, with uh, Irvin Lasler, with the Akashic, during the Akashic age, looking at the Akashic science, coming from uh, how will be the science of connecting us um, and I think the, the quantum science is going to validate that we're living in a highly, uh, let's say, energetic universe whereby the underlying field of energy and what we what was once called the quantum field or the vacuum field or the zero point field really will become primary. And the 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 the, let's say, the material manifested world will be recognized as being secondary. Now, that's a really, that's a complete turnaround, 360 degree turn. What that indicates then is consciousness is primary in our underpinning of reality. And so how we, how we, uh, how we see the world will have a, will have a, a great validation of um, how the world really will be connected. So, now, what I'm saying is that as soon as we have that validation, as soon as we shift perspectives, it gives a whole different view on, on how the world operates. So that, that is primary, because until we can shift perspectives and have a different take on consciousness, um, we have a different sense of how we can act in the world. And at the moment, I think the materialistic paradigm gives a lot of um, disempowerment to individuals, saying, well, what can I do? How can I interact in a very physical world? Now, if the scientists are saying that there's an underlying energy to our connectivity, which is really a consciousness is primary, then I think it gives a great empowerment. So that's, that, I think, is going to help us. But what I sense is that the, the children being born and coming into the world will already sense that. They won't need to be told that. And so that is going to be their advantage, Miriam. One of the ironic or amusing aspects of all of this is when you talk about the materialist view of the world is the, the notion, I think, one of the mathematicians uh, that you quote who said that the probability of intelligent life having arisen by chance on planet Earth 
uh, or life in general, is something like 1 over 10 to the 10,123.2. And that, you know, to put that into a a different perspective, that there are only uh, 10 to the 80th um, atoms in the universe, atoms of matter in the universe. So the... um, the religious perspective, the fundamentalist religious perspective, is actually um, starting to be validated uh, and perhaps converging with the scientific perspective in that there is an intelligence, there is, there has to be, by probability, by materialistic probability, a consciousness at work in the universe. So where do you feel that this impulse um, emanates from, this, this, for this emerging new consciousness? You have an excellent memory, Miriam. I, I, I couldn't even remember that exact mathematical figure, but yes, you're right. And, and what this actually shows uh, quite paradoxically is that these traditionalists um, and these, um, let's say, materialists, or I use that term loosely, you know, they've come to a point where they almost seem to be shooting themselves in the foot because they're trying to uh, quantify um, what is the possibility for, let's say, uh, you know, life, life in the universe and, and in, the, in the cosmos. And then their, their, their figure, when they try to give into mathematical statistics, is more likely that there is consciousness and life in the universe. And so it comes, they, 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 we've come to a point where the, the materialistic sciences can no longer uh, shoot down the, the, the consciousness paradigm, you know, through their own tools, mm-hmm. which, which I think is very significant in that we've come, and, you know, we've come to a point where human science has often said um, that consciousness, um, you know, is not a, is not a, I say, not a primary um, manifestation in the universe, and yet we've come to this realization through human consciousness by creating human science. And so there's that, you know, there's that paradox there that we're trying to, you know, disevaluate our results, which have come from the very core of human consciousness. And so, whereas before, I think it was the environment um, actually. Um, supported these material paradigms because they made sense. Everything made sense. The Big Bang made sense. The idea that we were really just a, um, an, we're just an accidental anomaly hurtling through space on the back of a dead rock. You know, if you put it that way, it, it doesn't it doesn't feel right, does it? We don't we it we just instinctively know that isn't right, and yet. We've been brought up and conditioned through our own, let's say, science, because science has been the dominant paradigm. It's been the, the religion for, for centuries, really. But we've come to a point, and in all great social cycles, um, that the dominant paradigm has so many anomalies, so many holes in it, more holes than a Swiss cheese, <laughs> that it, it can no longer stand up. And, and that's, when you, that's when you get these paradoxes that just start to really make anyone trying to stand up um, and, and to defend them, uh, you know, look really, um, well, in, in a dubious position. And that's the point, that's the point today, Miriam, which I think is, a, is wonderful because it's showing that 
we have to shift because the anomalies are, are weighing the, the um, traditional notions. And that's when great change comes in. That's when uh, moments are flexible for having the, the, new, the new worldview to, to come in. Now, one of the points you make is the difference in the balance of masculine, feminine energy. Can you expand on that? Yes, and for me, that, that's an important point. Um, because, again, just like, like science and humanistics, often the male and female energies have been seen as being um, one fighting the other, one dominant and then the other, which has been. And so, but this, again, is still looking in terms of duality. What I sense and what, I'm, what I write about and what I feel is coming, and which will be emphasized and manifested by the Phoenix generation, is that there will be a greater balance between these energies. And when I say masculine and feminine energies, I, I'm not looking at roles or genders, um, but really the, the, what, the nurturance that comes through these energies, the values that come through these energies. We call them masculine and feminine because predominantly uh, some of those values have been uh, espoused by, by some roles more than others. Now, what I call the feminine energy is one that is um, it's a collaborative. It's one that seeks connection. It's one that seeks uh, compassion and development through, through um, coming together. And one way to look at it is looking at it in terms of a circular nature, for example, if we have to use vocabulary. Now, the Internet is a very distributed system. It, it um, allows collaboration, it allows communication. People are coming together and discussing, almost like circles of people coming together, whereby in the past, um, the, the model was very much hierarchical and of, of power coming down from the top to the bottom. And for that, for me, was a very masculine energy, whereby um, knowledge, information was compartmentalized and passed down, whereby collaborative sharing and even multitasking, I feel, is a very feminine energy. Um, and also, it's not goal-orientated, whereby, again, the, the past structures, I feel, were very masculine, goal-orientated. These values are process-orientated, whereby we work, to, we work through a process and the result will come through how that's developed rather than having a set goal which is fixed and linear. Mm -hmm. And I, I sense that. And I, and I do feel that a lot of these um, roles in politics and business and finance really do need these energies to come through. And I, my sense is that many of uh, those of the Phoenix generation, many of the, uh, especially hopefully the uh, young women growing up, will take those roles in business and finance and um, will actually put energies into, that, into those systems and be the change. Because I don't feel that we need to do away with these systems. Economics is essential. Politics is essential. But it's the way they're run which needs to change from within. And so the Phoenix generation will be coming into those systems and changing them from within rather than trying to be the old masculine ways of trying to uh, break them down um, by beating them from without. And that's a very different way of looking at things. Well, the, the impression I got uh, from your book was that empathy was really quite central 
to the the feminine aspect uh, permeating or starting to permeate education and health and so on. It's it's really um, getting versus the masculine impulse of domination of of exerting power. Um, and when, when you describe it, how it plays out in things like, um, say, health and the media, it really was very persuasive. I think the younger generation really is embodying this collaborative, empathetic approach. Um, you, you mentioned some, organiz- uh, some organization created by youth to, um, uh, is it web-based? Yes, that was Generation Up, which yeah. now call themselves Gen Up, and um, yes, I mean they're, they're one example, and I, I, they're trying to develop new styles of leadership. Uh, one, the co-creator of Gen Up is Josh, Josh, Joshua Gorman, who I've been in conversation uh, quite a few times, and you know it's very inspiring listening to these people, and because empathy comes through really connecting and communicating with other people. And, and that's really been helped a lot and assisted through, of course, through global communications, which I feel has been rewiring the brain. And in fact, neuroscience and, and the, the understanding of neuroplasticity, whereby they say that um, neurons that fire together, wire together, which means that if we're using new technologies and new ways of communicating with people, then we use the brain in a different way. And connecting with people and sensing what they're going through, automatically, because we are human biological creatures, we have empathy inbuilt within us. It's just perhaps previously it hasn't been triggered or facilitated to that degree because we were very much in a, in a hierarchical power play and, and more isolated uh, environment. But now, um, seeing the plight of others, seeing that really we share a common humanity. And what's also very um, worthy to note, me is that now in the Western world we're very much connected, um, but still... Um, it's only, a, uh, let's say, um, a small percentage of the global community who are online. Now, in the upcoming years, the, the, new, uh, the greater percentage coming online will be from those we've considered the developing countries. And it's, it's um, actually been seen that from now to 2020, there could be as much as 3 billion new connections in the developing world. Now, those connections will mainly be coming through younger people who are tech-savvy, who have the, the need to connect and will be um, learning these connections. Now, these, I mean, could be billions, but certainly millions of new, young innovative minds coming into the global conversation, reaching out to to other like-minded minds across the world and many in the Western world. This connectivity across cultures, across ideologies, across backgrounds is really is what is going to trigger this empathy, this empathy which is a common humanity, which which then really does touch the human heart and, and the human instinct 
that I think is going to spearhead a lot of new groupings come together, people wanting to create organizations, especially amongst the youth. And because the young people across the world, they don't want war. They want the same thing. They want peace, whether in the Middle East or Southeast Asia. Uh, they want peace and they want to develop their communities. They want to develop their uh, their futures. And so this is going to override, I think, the power play, which is mainly coming through the old guard, wanting to, to maintain their uh, structures, their, um, their, you know, their, their colonial power play, their businesses. But the young people, they don't want that. They want to connect across those ideologies. And that is a great, a great wave of empathy, which I feel is going to be one of the major evolutionary drivers in the next, um, certainly the next decade and to 2030, Miriam. You mentioned at the beginning the, um, the analogy of a, of a dying um, uh, civilization going into chaos. This this is what brings to mind what's happening in the Middle East with uh, ISIL or ISIS. Um, that it seems to be the the sort of frantic last throes of this super masculine, um, uh, power driven, fear driven, I should say, energy. Uh, do you have a sense that? there is an opposition that will become vocal to it within these societies? That's a very good question. And when we look at what's going on in the world, we see that it's, it's really a result or, or what's often called blowback. And that's a CIA term for really um, the result coming back from our own actions and consequences. And what, what we've seen is really the old mind of of nationalistic tendencies, um, also ideological tendencies, which is very power-based, very aggressive, but it's also a, um, a response to the aggressive uh, tactics that's been coming from um, really empires. Now, really, we've come to the end of empires. We've had so many empires. We've had Early, we had the South Asian and Middle Eastern empires. We've gone through the Spanish, the British Empire. And I feel that we're on the cusp of the American empire because the world is a completely different playing field that no longer can there be an empire because an empire exists when you have a hegemony or one dominant player which completely overrides the rest. Now, look at, let's, we can see that the... the um, Already there's changes there with, um, let's say, the BRIC nations, with Brazil, Russia, India, China, um, South Africa. They're creating their own currency. Uh, they're creating um, their own collaborative um, uh, projects. They want to finance development in their own countries and in developing countries. And because of this interconnectivity, there can no longer be one global player. So what we're seeing, I think, is really the, the end game of the, the age of empires, the age of colonialism, and the age of this very masculine control, competition, uh, grab. And so what we see is like the IS and these aggressive players, really, they're the end point of, 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 of um, I say, what's been happening for, for decades or for centuries. So we can't expect it to happen overnight. But when the conditioning of these systems, this mindset starts to go on the way out. And the younger generation instinctively won't buy into this uh, nationalistic empire, empire model. Then 
we'll have a new consciousness coming in which won't support that. And really, any kind of aggression needs support, whether it's a, a fundamental aggression, a terrorist aggression, or a national nationalism, it needs support. And when you take away your support base, then you lose your power to act in the world. And so what I see is that the Phoenix generation are going to be the first wave en masse. We've had change agents, we've had great revolutionary uh, thinkers all way through civilization, but they've been often a minority. What I feel is that the younger generation are going to be the first generation en masse to come into the world with a new a real new consciousness with a new platform of technological and uh, empathic change and they will start to really uh, change the playing field and so the old guard won't have much an option but just to really shout and, and wave their you know wave their banners and, and wave their batons to a, to a dying audience and eventually they, they will be on the way out it will take time Miriam. Mm. well as you know <laughs> since you were my book um, what wags the world? Plug, plug. Um, <laughs> uh, so many people are having um, conscious awakenings at this time, and they are somehow reaching into what you call the gnosis, the, the direct connection with uh, the quantum consciousness. Um, and you make a very strong case for both the anecdotal evidence for the reality of this ability, um, as well as the sort of logical uh, reasoning that it must be happening. Share some of that with our readers, listeners. Yeah, and, and that's, that is why, for me, it, it feels inevitable. Now, when I read through uh, the, the other contributions to, to the book, What Wags the World, that, that you put forth with Julie Clayton, that I, I sense that there's a commonality between people's waking up. There may be slightly different triggers or a different way we frame it, but you can see a commonality because that is what, the, that is, what is there, the, the, between that connects us all. And so... I see that in the world, talking to people, seeing these new organizations, these young people. And when I see, again, the long view, um, as opposed to these systems on the way out, then um, it really is not a case of being a Pollyanna, which some people may say. And now, when I have conversations with people uh, in the past, and maybe um, even, you know, even a couple of years ago, I sense a great change. Uh, from then and now. Now, a decade ago, it was almost impossible to speak to people on these subjects of this transition because nothing had really happened in the world, no crisis to really show enough of, of this wake-up. So these change agents, I think, were were, were few. And also, they, were, they didn't have a platform to connect and, and share their stories of awakening so in, in such a, a way that we have today. So... It was, very, it was more difficult to validate our personal awakening with others. Now, when I'm speaking to more and more people, um, I'm finding this, this, this resonance with people, which is very useful because then we don't have to wade through so much vocabulary and, and try to explain ourselves because people get it a lot quicker, which is a sign of this waking up. And, and when, I, when I see younger people and I speak to them, I sense that they get it straight away. In fact, they look, at, they look at you and they, you know, it's like, you're talking about the new age, but really it's the new normal. 
you know? And maybe in a few years, Miriam, we won't have to talk about consciousness or even use the word spirituality because these understandings will exist and we won't have to try to point them out or frame them. It'll be a sense of instinct. Now, as I, as I mentioned in, in the, the introduction, or in fact, the, the, the opening words of the book, I said that maybe those of the Phoenix generation won't be even reading this book. Really, it's a book for us, what I call the bridge generation, because we're going to have a more difficult time of it, perhaps, in the sense that we have one foot in the world now, or the old systems, and those of us who are waking up and sensing this change have one foot in, in the world which is coming in. And that's, that's where the, um, the disruption is. As if, as if you throw two, two pebbles into a pool and you get waves ripping out from each pebble. When they hit, they have the interference. So I feel that this, we're going through this wave of interference now, which may be disheartening to some people, seeing that this, the disruption in the world, etc. But I'm saying that I feel that this, this interference, this wave of disruption, is actually a sign of the new energies coming in, which are hitting the energies on their way out. So, in fact, it's a positive sign. And when I look, and if you, if you do your own homework and scour the internet or look at the, the groups doing a great change, I mean, um, in, in the West Coast, in California, in America, there's groups um, doing great environmental change. There's food markets coming up, people starting their own gardens and deliveries, um, people working on uh, youth uh, uh, leadership. Um, there, there's so many groups coming up that this, for me, gives me hope. And so when you put that into, um, let's say, this, this new thinking and awakening which is coming in, for me, it's inevitable. And so I, I don't think I'm a Pollyanna. I don't think I'm being unrealistic. I, I'm being realistic by saying that it's going to take time, but this disruption is not a sign of chaos being dominant, but rather the reverse, a sign of the interference put into play by the new thinking coming in. And when you see it from that perspective, I think you, then you start to pick up on things and see the world in a totally different light. And that's where I'm trying to come from. Mm. You say for the first time that humanity will begin collectively to engage with its evolutionary purpose. Now, how would you describe our evolutionary purpose? Very good question, because that really is the crux of the matter. In that, from, I mean, again, I speak from my own sense and my own intuition. And for me, for me, the development of human consciousness as part of a developing world, as part of a bigger picture, a developing cosmos, is, is primary, is fundamental. Um, now, of course, the word evolutionary still has a lot of baggage coming from uh, Darwinism and, and, again, the old mind duality. If you have Darwinism, the other side of the coin must be creationism. Now, I'm not entering that argument. I'm not saying we have creationism or Darwinism. I, my sense is that we do have a movement, a movement towards uh, a greater awareness. And in human terms, it's, it's a consciousness, which through that awareness allows us to see our place in the world and therefore also a place of our world in the bigger picture, which is a cosmos. Which is why I, I named the final chapter in the book, Normalizing the Multiverse. Now, if you look at science, scientists said we had first one universe, which was 
created by the Big Bang. Now, latest science and even um, the physicists are saying, well, the models that we have now say that our universe is, is a part of many universes. We have multiverses. And those multiverses may be part of other dimensions, maybe as many as 12 dimensions. Now, I, don't, I wouldn't even put a figure on it because to say there's 12 dimensions is very human, to put a mathematical figure, 12, 13, 5, you know, it's still the same pie. But what science has shown us is that scientists are willing now to move from one universe model to a multiverse model to a multidimensional model. So it shows you that we are advancing uh, or moving in that area through awareness. Now, the more awareness we have and the more that we are consciously aware of our reflection and our participation in the world, we can we can align our lives and we can live in that understanding. So I say it's, an, it's precedent for uh, and maybe the first time in recorded known history that we have this awareness of our place in the world rather than seeing the world as being very um, a closed system, being a vacuum, life being an accident and, and going through our lives without meaning. So I also feel that this sense of meaning and what I frame in the book as the calling will be our awakening of our human gnosis, our instinct within us that we are part of a living universe, a living universe of great meaning and significance, um, which I feel will give then will reflect back and give us a sense of uh, significance and worth of the human being. So although the human being may be a small, small part of a great multiverse or great multidimensional reality, each human being has great meaning because we can be aware that we are a sentient intelligence within a greater intelligence. And that meaning inevitably must push us forward um, towards wanting to nurture and further life in all its in aspects, whether it's uh, life of nature, life of the cosmos, and life of the human. And that, that shift of consciousness will be a game change in the years ahead. Miriam. It also puts a different perspective on the uh, fiercely held thought paradigms that box us into confrontation with others, um, you know, whether it's on the political scene or the religious scene. When you put it all into a cosmic perspective, these uh, considerations sort of melt away into insignificance. Um, what, one of the uh, people that you quote in the book uh, is uh, Professor Johnny Mack, who did uh, the, the the Harvard professor who did a lot of interviews with people who claim alien abduction? Um, I thought that the perspectives that the people received and reported afterwards were very telling, um, and uh, hopefully uh, a harbinger of the uh, Phoenix generation who will arrive at these. Uh, more organically, um, paint us a word picture of what you see as this new cosmic mindset. Mm. Yes, and um, bringing in the, uh, that notion of uh, having the abduction experience that Professor John Mack looked at um, you know, may prick a few people's ears up. In fact, it, 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 
in, it blew the mind of, of John Mack himself. John Mack was um, a Harvard professor of um, psychology, and he had spent all his life in a very orthodox environment. And he wanted to know what, what, what were these people's experiences? Um, not, so, not so much um, did they have the abduction experience or not, but how did it change their worldview afterwards? And, and you know, when he documented the, the experiences of these people, uh, the results were, were, were so, um, I say, it's quite incredible that um, I, I felt I had to point towards it as well because the whole point of Max research and, and what I was trying to stress is it, it doesn't matter if these people were abducted or not. That's not the point. The point is these people had uh, an experience which took them outside of their normal condition paradigms, took them out of their reality set. And the result of that was they had almost a, a cosmic consciousness, uh, to use the phrase that, that uh, Richard Brooke talked about in his classic cosmic consciousness. And so they'd almost gone through a kind of uh, a mystical experience. And also the same with people who went through NDE, near-death experiences. And I pointed towards some of the work of, of PMH Atwater, who I've also been in conversation with. And people who have these experiences... Um, now, now, again, it's not a question of, of did, was it right or wrong, were they true? The point is... How was their consciousness affected through their experience? And their experiences uh, were almost, um, let's say, they came back with a very similar point of view in that we are part of a living cosmos, we are part of an energetic environment, and we are part of a, a, a movement which takes us towards greater awareness, a greater connection with our living cosmos, and a greater future for humanity. And these were positive, um, despite the, the conditioning of fear for what, from what they went through, leaving their bodies, for example. Um, their consciousness went through a very positive and uh, almost vibrationally uplifting, to use their own words. And so I think that's the point to look at, is that people who have these experiences... Um, I feel are the, are the forerunners. Now, in the past, we, we looked at mystics or people who went through an initiatory experience or a transcendental experience. And even, let's say, the 60s, where it's a great time of experimentation, whether through uh, ingesting certain substances, people had this experience. What, for me, is important was that those experiences um, are not validating the process that they used, but what they indicated was those experiences were valid. The question is, how do we make those states of consciousness more permanent? And for me, we don't need to ingest anything. We don't need to have an NDE. We don't need to be abducted. We're moving towards a time where I feel that those states of consciousness will be more permanent as a natural inheritance uh, and that, yeah, uh, of the human race. And those indications were the forerunners. But the Phoenix generation will start to bring in that understanding and hopefully make it a more permanent fixture. Um, so that's why I felt it was important to touch upon that. Well, all I can say is that when I came to the end of your book, mm -hmm. I, I really had this image of standing up on the platform and having all these masses cheering for humanity. I mean, it was so <laughs> uplifting. <laughs> Oh, I'm glad you felt that way. And I, you know, I, 
I went with my own instinct and trust, and I feel the same. And people may say, yes, it's never going to happen. Well, you know, it, where it, it is how we, yes, and where, you, where we put our focus, where we put our perspectives is, is how we see things. And, you know, I did, I did research and I looked at the world, the world as it has been, the world going through disruption. And then I did, I did research looking at the innovations that are coming through in the world in, in technology, innovations in organizations going out, in, in helping people in communities, uh, the, the new youth groups. I talked to these young people as well. I mean, look at these young people. They're, they're creating... Uh, they're becoming entrepreneurs at six years old. I mean, yes. I think just just last week this, there was a, re, a news report about a young boy in the UK, five years old, with the youngest boy to pass a, a Microsoft coding test, and he's starting his own business of of software at five years old. Um, if you look at that, we can see the change coming in. So it's not Pollyanna, it's not unrealizable, it is happening. And, you know, I think if we can help to bring that in by focusing and talking about it, not make it the new age, but make it the new normal, we'll all start to get it collectively rather than just a few of us. Here, here. Tell me, Kingsley, um, what is a website that would be good for readers to uh, find out more about you? Uh, well, thank you. The, the most direct way is, is through my own website, uh, kingsleydennis.com. Um, probably easier just to Google my name, so fastest way to find it. And I have uh, my work and a lot of essays um, available to, to look at and download on the site. Um, and so, yeah, I'll Google my name and, and just find out a lot of the essays I put online in, in different areas uh, to find out. Um, I'm fairly active on the web and, and I have a lot of, a lot of stuff out there. Listeners, I must apologize for that. I keep on saying readers because we're just about to launch New <laughs> Consciousness Review magazine. That's why I have it on the brain. Anyway, um, and you can find out more about our magazine on ncreview.com. Kingsley, I want to thank you so much for being with us. You, your book, The Phoenix Generation, A New Era of Connection, compassion, and consciousness really deserves to be in everybody's Christmas basket. If you want to give a gift of upliftment and positivity and optimism, that's the one. The Phoenix Generation by Kingsley Dennis. Kingsley, thank you. Miriam, it's been a great pleasure for, for connecting, communicating, and having this great compassionate and passionate talk. Very much appreciated, and thank you to everyone who's listening and thank you listeners see you again next week until then this is miriam knight for new consciousness review see you then bye bye 